is a presentation of the Wrongful Conviction Project, a collaboration between Restorative Justice International and the Vanguard Court Watch. Every month, we shine a light on wrongful convictions while urging the application of restorative justice to seek systemic reform of our justice system. I'm Lisa Ray from Restorative Justice International. And I'm David Greenwald from the Vanguard Court Watch. In 1992, Francisco Frankie Carrillo Jr. was convicted and sentenced to life in prison for the drive-by shooting of Donald Sarpy in Linwood, California. Frankie was 16 when he was arrested. He served 20 years until his conviction was overturned by a court in 2011. The wrongful conviction was due to eyewitness misidentification and law enforcement misconduct, or in essence, bad cop work. In 2012, right after Frankie was exonerated, I saw a program featuring Ellen Eggers. She's a state public defender whose work helped to exonerate Frankie. This is a story about a lot of things, but especially about poor identification and tunnel vision by the sheriff who investigated the case. It was an identification that was based on suggestion and on poor techniques. And the amazing part was they ended up doing a simulation uh, when they had a rehearing that reenacted the shooting conditions and demonstrated convincingly that there was no way anyone could see the face of the shooter. As Ellen told the story, she was standing next to the DA investigator after the simulation. He calls up presumably his boss, and he says, you can't see shit. Still, the judge deadpanned it, and they didn't know what his thinking was until ultimately he threw out the conviction, and the DA's office clearly made the right call in dismissing the charges. And Frankie was awarded $10.1 million in 2016, which is one of the largest amounts paid out in California involving a sheriff's department. The Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors unanimously agreed to the settlement, voting that the conviction was a violation of Frankie's federal civil rights. Welcome to the show, Frankie. Thank you, David and Lisa. It's great to be here. So, Frankie, you're, you're, you're a teenager, and you know you're innocent of this. What's going through your mind? Well, the initial response was, or, or reaction was, the adults would take care of it. You know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a high school student. I'm a 10th grader. I, um, you know, am under the care of my, my father. I'm a, and so my, my thinking was basically that, that this would get in front of a judge, the right people who make these determinations and will assess the evidence or assess the, whatever is being presented will determine if this is a mistake and I would go home. Like it, for me as a young boy, was that naive, but it's also that clear. And at what point did you realize that this wasn't going to be easy and, and overturned and, and, and that you were going to be able to walk away? You know, David, I think I, I oversimplified the process, but that, that kind of goes hand in hand with the, I was only a boy. So I was only 16. So that's, that makes sense. But I, I think as as the process uh, prolonged, the hearings uh, went from one to the other to the other, the court hearings, that is, and ultimately 
Um, you know, it seemed like it was more procedural than kind of getting down to the nitty gritty of what, what, why we were there. It was, um, you know, just lawyers and DAs and judges kind of doing their, their thing, preparing for, I guess, pretrial. Um, you know, and so it was, it was a rude awakening into this, this system that I, I really thought that it would be something uh, more simplistic, but it obviously wasn't. And, and this case really turned on eyewitness identification. I mean, there was no other evidence, right? You know, initially that, that's the case. You know, we, you know, even I was thinking, you know, these boys just made a mistake and they confused me with someone else. That, that experience I've had many years, as many people have, you know, and you might be at a party or just out and about and someone says, hey, don't you know, some other, where do I know you from? And you sort of have to be the person that says, oh, you know, you're making a mistake or I've never been to the Philippines or whatever. Um, you know, and so, so that's what we're initially thinking was the, was the, the, the you know, the, the evidence used against me. But then as time went on, uh, many, many years later, we discovered that there was uh, coercion behind those eyewitness testimonies. Yeah, so not only did they not actually see you, and, I, you know, the first guy may have been honest about it, but after that, uh, the sheriff's, like, pushing the buttons to get them to identify you, right? That's correct, David. You know, it's... it's um, you know, it, in my, they sort of wash it away by saying, this is just the way that they, they operate. This is their investigation tactic. Um, but as we now know, that that is not how you do it. If, if a witness, if you ask a witness a question and he says he doesn't know, that's the answer. When you start feeding him the answer that you, he want, you want them to repeat back to you, then that's, that's you manipulating the evidence. And so that's, that's what this case hinges on. And we really didn't know until recently just how unreliable eyewitness identification was. Um, and your your case really exposes all the problems with this, wouldn't you say? I, you know, it's it, it you know this this adage about that I sort of uh, alluded to a minute ago about you know we all have experienced either have been uh, the person who's who's uh, tapping the shoulder and says, "Hey, I haven't seen you in a while." Or, or we make the mistake of saying, hey, that guy looks familiar, or that woman looks familiar. So this thing about our eyes playing tricks on us simply because of facial features or memory we might have or a faded memory, like those things are date back to maybe the beginning of time. But how that process has been taken advantage of by law enforcement and other people, I suppose. But um, I think that is, is um, my case is definitely not the first, I should say. No, definitely. But, uh, you know, I, I think we've learned in the last 10 years uh, how bad it is. Uh, I, I think we always Correct. probably suspected that there were problems. But what is that stat? I, I mean, it's like 70% of wrongful conviction cases involve bad identification. You know, I, I think it's that high. You know, David, it's one of the things that, when a witness gets on the on the witness stand in court and he he or she you know raises her hand and swears to tell the truth and begins to recount the story of, of the of the crime and the jury's listening or the, the judge is listening if it's a, if it's a uh, trial by judge someone's story is so compelling because there's emotions tied into it 
there's, um, you know, um, might be, um, you know, breaking down of the things they're recalling. But if, if, the, if what they're remembering is not even correct, well, that's not that what they're saying is wrong, but how they remember it is wrong, then, then, then you, you're, you're performing to people's emotions, and that's very easy to do. When you say, you know, I was the victim, the gun, I saw the gun, the man he was bleeding on the floor, you know, I want, and what do you want? I want justice. I want this person to be uh, uh, punished. That's a really easy, those are e- really easy dots to connect. Yeah, and and what we've also learned is that just because somebody feels confident in their identification doesn't mean that they're confidently correct. That's that's so true. That's so true. That people can can be absolutely convinced because of the way that memory works that they're uh, correct in terms of how they identified uh, this person, and it could be the the wrong person, but they they don't even know it. You know, uh, here in California, uh, Senator uh, Scott Weiner. He, he authored a bill about uh, safeguarding the photographic line of procedure before uh, the, the investigative officer. So the officer who, who has a suspicion about who they're after, that officer would, would be the one who would show the witness uh, the photographs or maybe even a live lineup. So that's, that's also a, a problematic. And so the, the law now reads, the law passed, that the investigator conducting the investigation can no longer be the person who will show the photographs because what, what was shown to, uh, what was proven to happen over and over was that there was body language involved. There were hints, there were subtle hints, uh, tone, tone, um, you know, just vocal gestures, maybe a number of ways that were, were happening directly or indirectly uh, that were cues to the witness to indicate that they had uh, done the right thing or that the, wind, the person they picked um, um, was either either not the person who they wanted them to pick and so they, they maybe chose someone else. And under those circumstances, I can see a witness being um, under duress. You know, you're, you're in a, in, in typically in the sheriff's or police station, uh, there are radios or people with guns. You are there because you saw something and you're supposed to give them what they want. And so I, I, it's hard to sort of walk away saying, well, sorry, but I, you know, I, I can't help you because you're, you've already claimed to have witnessed the crime. So now it's time for you to perform. So how do we safeguard against this? How do we prevent future Frankies from ending up spending 20 years of their lives in, in prison and, by the way, uh, you're kind of lucky um, because you got out in 20 years. Uh, I'm dealing with cases where the people have been in for 40, 45 years. I know. I, you know, I, I feel that my, you know, I'm, I'm a living day miracle, modern day miracle, I should say. You know, many, many wish that would be in my situation as I once wished that I would be free when I would see someone on TV after they'd been exonerated. And so, you know, it, it worked out for me. And you're right, David. There are many people who are still suffering on the inside who maybe don't have evidence of their, of their innocence or maybe they're still uh, stones to be, to be turned over. Um, and for those people, I hope they never give up. I hope they, you know, they reach their, 
their uh, their dream of, of, of justice. Uh, before I turn it over to Lisa here, um, you know, talk briefly about some of the things that you've been able to do since you've been released. You know, one of the main things that I that I need to sort of just begin with is is because it's very critical for anyone coming home after being incarcerated. It's just acclimating back to society. There is there are some people who make it look very easy, while others struggle from the moment they get out, and all that in between doesn't mean that they will always struggle, or will it, does it mean that the guy who succeeds early on at some point will will um, the traumas will will arise, and you know he or she would be uh, in an a unbalanced sort of state of, of of being on the outside now, but. Um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful and I knock on wood that I can, I can, uh, that I was able to, to transition, uh, back, um, smoothly. Um, you know, as you guys know, I have a featured Netflix series that, that aired about a month and a half ago now. And so I've been getting my story out, finding ways to be, um, helpful, you know, but, you know, no one can do it alone. That's, that's a matter that I, that I, um, you know, can testify to. Um, but I, I think the main thing, you know, and I'll let me just kind of go back to that. The main thing is that um, I've been fortunate enough to um, simply acclimate back in society. And I think that's a huge achievement all to itself. Mm-hmm. Lisa? Okay, yeah. So, Frankie, um, it's so great to talk to you. And uh, I know I pursued you for a long time to get you on a, a podcast. <laughs> so thank you. Well, for thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You're hard to get. So, so what I always ask on my po- on my podcast is I always ask the guests, "How did we meet?" And I ask you that now. Well, you know, it's, it's, I had the honor of meeting you, Lisa, in North Carolina at a restorative justice conference. And, you know, I think it might have been, um, maybe you've never talked about this part of the story, but I think we were both in the, in the lobby area. Um, maybe we both need a little bit of air. After all the, you know, after, after sitting around for a while, after, you know, after days of conferences and, and you know, being a good listener and taking notes, you kind of okay. need to stretch your legs. And I, think, I think that's kind of where it happened. So, 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 so you're close. <laughs> I, I, can, I can get even more specific. So it was 2011. Which would mean that's mm-hmm. when you got out, and uh, right. you were at the conference, like you said, North Carolina it was a restorative justice conference, and I was doing a workshop on restorative justice, and you were in the audience, and wow. I yes, and it wasn't a big um, group; it was a workshop, and I looked out, and I I saw your face, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is the guy that was in the New York or in the Los Angeles Times, and he's he's exonerated. And so I, I realized you were the man. And after the, after the workshop was over, I ran down the hallway to catch you. And that's when we met oh, in the hallway. Because I, I frankly, I was, I, I was just doing my usual restorative justice presentation, but it was one that you attended. And yeah, I was talking about in prison restorative justice, but it was so great to see you. And then that's how we connected. So yeah, and here it is 2020. So, so what, what I'm going to try to do in this interview is to ask questions about restorative justice and bring that in. Sure. So, so yeah, let's talk about the real offender. Um, in your case, what happened to the offender who actually committed the crime? Was he ever 
convicted? Was he found? What happened? So, so he was never convicted. Um, as you guys know from the uh, Netflix documentary, there was attempts that he made to expose or um, um, come forward with the truth that, of his guilt. And that was rejected because, you know, I think the tunnel vision that David talked about where once law enforcement has zeroed in and there is nothing that can be said or, or done to change your mind, it, it doesn't matter. And so the sheriff's department who, in, who are in, in control of the investigation decided all of that is made up. We don't care. We believe the person who's guilty is right here, Frankie Carrillo. And, um, and so to, back to your uh, question, um, he remains free. He was also, he was, I think he was 17 years old when he, when, when this crime happened. So he was, he was a youth as well. And, um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a interesting and, and sad story in, in many ways. It's unbelievable. And so from a restorative justice perspective, um, I know you met the son of the victim, Damien Sarpy. That's correct. Yeah, and tell, tell us about that. What happened? How did you get in contact with him, and how did that meeting go? Well, you know, I might have to preface it by saying that, you know, um, Scott Wood and, and Seth Weiner, who were Loyola professors, um, were part of my legal team. And so these are the, these are the gentlemen who introduced restorative justice. The actual term restorative justice, I felt that I had, I, I knew what that felt like. I just didn't know what it was, what they were referring to the name that they were giving it when I was in prison. And so when I came home, I was, I was so moved by this very compassionate response, really the pain. And, and um, I embraced it. I embraced it so heartedly when I came home, um, when I you know, um, reached out to the victim's family, when I reached out to the district attorneys who either prosecuted me in, initially or at the end. Um, the judge and I are really good friends now. So it, it's really rooted in this, in this thinking. And so uh, it, was, it was an automatic and easy thing for me to do to reach out to Damien Sarpy um, for many reasons. You know, I think typically uh, folks don't want to talk to the person who harmed them. That seems to be such an easy response. Like, you know, you, you lied. It's all your fault. But for me, I knew that the same way that I was hurting, he was hurting. The same way that um, he was manipulated to justify wrongfully against me had traces of trauma that, that I felt that if he and I uh, just spoke and sat down and shared a couple uh, glass of water or just, just been able to be close in proximity to one another, that it would be helpful. And I'll tell you that for my end, it's been very helpful. And he's a great man. Yes, and so he... Um, as we know, then his family they never got justice because you were convicted and the wrong person was never held accountable. You know, I, I think that the restorative justice topic. Um, you know, if, if we're talking about like, I don't know, maybe it's a different topic I want to use for that part of it. But I think that what's happened right now has been a failure of the system. So mm -hmm. they believe that they had justice. That's not that they didn't, they didn't get justice. They believe that they had it. And for 20 years, or maybe for okay. a little bit before, uh, less than that, they were under the pretenses that that the justice that they expected, they received. And sadly, uh, if you would talk to Damien or Damien's family, they were justice wasn't healing for them. This justice, this imaginary justice, you know, the brother, the mother, the sister are are in pain after all this. And so it wasn't a restorative justice right. that even when they thought they had the right guy. Right, 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 and. And, you know, the work that um, my group, RJI, does and also um, 
the Davis Vanguard, you know, we're, we're strongly in support of reforming the criminal justice system in wrongful convictions. And, and as, as you're telling us here, you, know, you're, you were a victim of the system. So not only was um, Donald Sarpy a victim, but you were a victim, and that's two victims. And that's why we're so uh, angry about um, the wrongful convictions in our system. Right. No, it's, I, I'm with you. And it's, it's, um, I think, I think that the, there are a number of victims here, obviously, um, back to the Netflix series, when, when the jurors come back and realize that they were lied to and they were given false evidence. So they, they, I'm sure they feel like betrayed by the system, but it's also another black eye to the overall criminal justice system when people are abusing it for their or taking advantage of it to get the results they want. And so when a law enforcement officer walks into court and, you know, goes to the procedures of, of swearing and tell the truth and then begins to lie, that that is, is a, a terrible thing to do, but it also damages the reputation of the system we all rely on. Okay. And if and if we allow people just to go in there and, and abuse it, then I think that's then shame on all of us, right? All right, absolutely. And and I was thinking of uh Damien um, the, the son, and uh, again, did he uh, express some kind of um, uh, feelings towards you um, and letting him know that he was sorry that you went through this, given you were an innocent man? Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. his, he's a, he's a, I'll, I'll tell you, Lisa, that you, know, you never know you, when, you, when you reach out to someone um, like I did to Damien, the, the, the man who in two trials pointed at me and said, that's the name word of my father. And then on the third hearing, he's now saying he, that was all a mistake, that he lied and, and he clarified the story. You know, that's something that happens in open court in a very public setting. But when you have a private moment with someone like that, you know, you, you never really know what's going to happen. You know, the guy mm -hmm. can just say, you know what, I'm gonna, I want to strike this guy. I want to fight him. I don't care. Rage comes back. But this is a this is a mature man who's a, who has a beautiful uh, wife and children, who is he works in the healthcare. I think he works in the ER uh, at a hospital, and so he's he's I, I refer to him as a mature man that has been able to process all that has happened in his youth, and he got to a point where he realized you know shame on me maybe some shame uh, triggered all this, uh, but also with the lawyers coming to him. And he said, I have to do the right thing. And that, 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 takes, a, that takes a lot of uh, maturity to, to get to that point. Right. And I remember in, the, I think it was the Netflix um, show, um, Ellen Eggers, um, one of your attorneys, um, she went to Damien, didn't she, to get him to uh, acknowledge that, um, that it, had, it had the wrong person in prison. Isn't that how it happened? She did. So Ellen Eggers, as you mentioned, was one of was basically my lead attorney and you know she was she was diehard she was she was doing her job you know the, the job that i think all everyone who hires an attorney or has representation of that of that type you know expects them to do everything in their power and so Dellen was living that out to the teeth and um you know she she knew that approaching these witnesses might be you know a number of responses that they could have given her but the fact that they were maybe after the 10th attempt or whatever attempt it was, they said, okay, well, like, I want to talk, I want to hear you out. And, and again, like, you know, good for Ellen Eggers for, to, to not give up and, and good for Damon Sarpy to 
enter in the door that day. Right, right. And and two other points. Um, in your case, you were able to get, um, was it $10.1 million? You know, I actually got more than that. No, I actually yeah. got more than that. So I got, I got, I, I, the, the California Victims, what is that? The California Victims Fund. Yeah, Crime Victims um, Fund. Yeah. Crime Victims Fund. So they awarded me almost a million dollars. Um, I got, uh, I filed for that compensation. And, um, it's, you know, there's a process, obviously, the AG's office, office gets involved. And there was a hearing that I attended in Sacramento. Um, I think I think at the end the the AG testified she didn't testify but she announced to the board that she was in agreement that I'd get the money and so it made it very easy for for um, my attorney I think it was Ellen Eggers again and myself to just give a very uh, short statement after that so uh, th that that along with the 10.1 million dollars that I that I was awarded during my criminal um, during my, my civil lawsuit. Uh, a federal civil lawsuit that is um so so yes there was there was two two pots of gold if you right what, right and, and my 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 question and my comment is you know so often those who have been wrongfully, wrongfully convicted do not get that kind of uh, compensation and restitution and but you you were able to get it but you know we're concerned and i know you are as well about what what about those innocent ones who never got a penny I agree. I agree. You know, it's um, if it's you know, there's been there's been many attempts to um, fast track uh, litigation, well, not fast track, fast track litigation, but introduce litigation that would make that the, that process uh, smoother to prove. Um, um, there's been attempts to um, you know put pressure on the board. I think the, the, the there was a gentleman on there from Riverside who was no longer there. He was, he was a, uh, you know, the people just could not stand because he was so um, yeah. against, you know, being open. I forget his name now, but um, he was at a Riverside. He was a, a DA there or even law enforcement. And, you know, so he's gone. So there's been some, some internal changes as well. Um, but you're right. You know, um, there are these cases where, you know, it's also another miracle that has to sort of uh, all the sort of get aligned for that competition to happen as well. You know, I listened to your podcast on, um, on, um, you know, just recently on Maurice Caldwell, oh, yeah. who, is, who has been free, who has been freed, and I think symbolically the money seems to be the the, the apology, you know, for many exonerees. Like that's how symbolically the, the government says we're sorry for what happened, and in and in Maurice's case, as, as you guys know, uh, he hasn't been compensated, and so you know, it's, it's unfortunate. Yes, and we have to change that. And um, let me ask you one other question or point this out. So again, with um, in your case, um, the real perpetrator was never found or held accountable. And um, you know, I, I'm thinking about how we need to change our laws so that that um, the prosecutors um, will then, you know, once they find that someone like you is innocent, they need to go back and open up that case and find the real perpetrator. But that's the problem, Lisa. So um, you, you, you speak of it as if he hasn't been found, but they know who he is. Yeah. I mean, so okay. the, I want to be clear here. I, I don't want to be misleading here. Okay. Law enforcement um, has a copy of his confession. Okay. Law enforcement knows who he is, and and I think it it takes it takes a decision within their their 
their higher ups, I suppose, or whoever makes that call to say, we're going to go after the person we believe is now the guilty party or, or not like that. I don't think, I don't think you can pass a law to make, to make uh, law enforcement do their job. Like, I mean, that sort of seems ridiculous all to itself. It seems like what's happening right now with George Floyd, like outside pressure had to come in to force um, the powers to be in Minnesota to arrest the other officers. Like you would assume like you didn't have to need any pressure to do that. But in this case, you needed outside pressure. It'd be like, do your job, dude. You know, so that's interesting. Like all these cases are so unique, you know? Yes, but that's totally right. And and then um, lastly, it was similar questions that uh, David asked, but, you know, uh, what else can be done? And, and uh, let me just point out and recognize the fact that I'm aware that you ran for um, a seat in the California Assembly in the legislature in 2017. So good for you. Good for you, Frank, Thank for you. doing that. Yeah, and I know it got truncated, um, but... but um, I hope you run again. And so what, what other recommendations do you have about fixing these wrongs? You know, I'll, I'll, I'll piggyback off of what you said, Lisa. You know, there is, there is a, a movement now. There has been more, more pressure for those who have been system impacted to run for public office. You know, I, I was on the ballot this past March to be, um, you know, a central committee member of the Democratic Party. So it's, it's a, you know, you're not a, you're an elected official, but like low level. And, and regardless, like I'm proud that I was elected by the, by my community. But but the reality is that I think until we have people, the right people, obviously as, as well, to be uh, supported by our community, regardless of what they what 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 is on their rap sheet or whatever they they happened in the past, if they're exonerees or not, even if someone just paid their dues to society. And we have a, a, a huge symbolic response that says we as a society are aware of this, of this individual's um, past, and regardless of that, we still want them to be our representatives. I think that can be very symbolic as in, in changing the complexity and the way we think about those who were either wrongfully convicted or just those who have been incarcerated. Um, but I, I think that I think uh, just to add one more point about what we can do as a society as a whole. You know, I'm I'm a big I'm a big um, critic, I suppose, but also open to all ideas about the about the jury process. So, you know, I since I've been I've been home now for a little over nine years, and I was I was honored the day I got the envelope in the mail that said I had jury duty. Hmm. And so I went to our local, or, or you know, where it, I went where they told me to go, and I walked into the waiting room. It might have been a couple hundred people there, you know, all ages, all backgrounds. And I'll tell you guys that I did 20 years in prison, which is a very hostile, negative, uh, and, and very sad place to be in. But when I walked into that jury lobby room, that was the saddest thing, the worst, saddest looking faces that I experienced in my whole life. And, that, mm. and, I, and I'm using prison to yeah. compare this moment to. And it's like, oh my God, my life is ruined. What am I doing here? Uh, nobody wants to be on the jury. And and this this energy, you know, is is what and you know. So so this is the energy that's in this room, who's going to ultimately decide someone's outcome. Mm. And I'll tell you, I'll make this final point here. A judge came out of, out of the back somewhere, and you know, she was um, 
you know, middle-aged uh, woman with her robe on, and she was doing a pep rally about like, you know, you're doing your civic duty, and how how great of you to show up. And she said, by by a hand of by a show of hands, who's happy to be here? And I raised my hand. I raised my hand so high, like I want her to see me, right? And I looked around, and there was some one other man with he had he had a little puzzle in his hand. He had some, some little head, uh, old school uh, headphones on, little wire ones. He and I, out of, out of these hundreds of people, raised our hand. And I remember a lady who was sitting there with her hand down, obviously, looked at me like, you kiss ass, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> so like right. this, this attitude has to change. I mean, that's, right. that's awesome. <laughs> and if they only knew your story, Frankie, if they had only known your right. story that day. Well, listen, we're coming to the end of our of our podcast so thank you so much for telling your story and being with us today so much fun thank you david and, and you we should have mentioned I've, I've been i've been at your award dinner i love the work you guys both do yes back in 2012 right after you were out um it was an amazing experience with all those great people up there yeah thanks thanks for having me guys and it's um i'm looking forward to a part two of this of this podcast This has been a production of the Wrongful Conviction Project. Restorative Justice International is an association and network advocating for victims-driven restorative justice with over 6,000 affiliates and members around the nation and globe. RJI works for systemic justice reform based on restorative justice principles to encourage offender accountability, healing of crime victims as much as possible, and increasing community engagement in the justice system. For more information, log on to RestorativeJusticeInternational.com. The Vanguard Court Watch is a community-based watchdog and news reporting organization that publishes daily coverage of local government and criminal justice reform. The Vanguard seeks to bring transparency, accountability, and fairness to local government and the courts while promoting social justice and democracy and adhering to principles of accuracy and fairness in our reporting. For more information, log on to davisvanguard.org.